the way I've been phrasing it essentially that I think we're in a deep value zone. I think it's very attractive here with like a three to five year view, but that I have no idea really what's going to happen in the next six months. I think there's, it, it really depends on what centralized policymakers do, you know, whether or not we have an acute liquidity crisis, you know, what happens with China reopening and energy prices, and then what is, how does drone power respond to that if it happens? There's all these kind of if, if or situations that could pop up that are hard to predict in advance. Uh, but I do think that if you're bullish on the underlying reason for the asset to exist, which is kind of what we just covered in, in the prior portion of this talk. If you think it's the best solution for solving that problem, if you don't see any other better solutions, and if you think that it's still under-owned compared to its potential, which I would, for me at least personally, I would check off yes to all those boxes, that I think it is undervalued here. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Freaks, hogs, ladies and gentlemen, we are kicking this year off with a banger, Lynn Alden. In the ancient world, the Greeks honored the oracle at Delphi. In Bitcoin, we also have an oracle that we honor, and her name is Lynn Alden. And she is every bit as prophetic as those at Omaha or Delphi. Smart enough not to commit to ridiculous prophecies, but uses data and an incredibly analytical mind to sift the nonsense from reality. She is, if we're going to be honest, our North Star for parsing bullshit from reality. We start this discussion with a deep dive into who Lynn is and what has made her who she is. We encourage listeners to check this out, but if you want to dive straight into the macro info, you can find that at about the 27 minute mark. We highly encourage listeners to read Lynn's material, all of it. Now, about this Bitcoin dev hack, you may be thinking to yourself, holy shit, if a Bitcoin dev got hacked, I'm pretty much fucked. Well, not so. This money was stolen from a hot wallet held on a computer connected to the internet. I'll just give you a quick prescription for what will protect you from the same fate. If you get yourself a cold card Mark IV from CoinKite and you connect it either wired or air-gapped to your computer, this will give you a situation where you are far more protected than a hot wallet on an internet-connected computer. The point of security is basically this. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The security that you will have with a cold card Mark IV is far superior to anything you will have on your computer using a hot wallet. The reason for this is simple. Your keys never touch an internet-connected computer, ever. Dan and I trust cold cards to keep our Bitcoin safe. Use code BCB to get 5% off the Mark IV. Get your Bitcoin off of exchanges, off of hot wallets, and onto the most trusted hardware wallet in existence, the cold card Mark IV. Just a friendly reminder that Bitcoin 2023 is going on in May in Miami, I was there last year and I had an incredible time. Dan and myself, Josh, are both planning on going. We've got our Airbnb booked. We've got everything ready to roll. We've got our tickets in hand. And if you're not planning to be there, you should. We do have a new discount code for you if you want to go and haven't bought your ticket yet. You can buy it with a 10% discount using the blue collar Bitcoin discount code, which is BCB23. That's BCB23 to get 10% off your Bitcoin 2023 conference tickets in Miami. We'll see you there. 
All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Lynn, Happy New Year. Josh and I are delighted to have you back on Blue Collar Bitcoin. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be back, and uh, I think you guys are killing it. I think you're you're one of the breakout podcasts over the past, I don't know exactly when you started, but over the past year, certainly when I discovered you. So I think you're doing amazing work. Wow. Thank you, Lynn. That's high praise. Dan, We I think we both talked about this a little bit. We are really excited to have you, but also we're a little bit scared Yeah. Um, because of your intellectual <laughs> ability and doing a little research on you, your capability of violence, apparently, that is an MMA fighter, like... We are not only intimidated intellectually, but physically. So yeah. please be careful yep. with us here. Like, yeah, as we were brainstorming this one, we're like, you know, there's certain guests we get particularly giddy for. You're certainly on that list. Um, and we were saying, you know, you've been on before. We've interacted some with you this year. It's it's apparent you're you're kind, you're genuine, you're humble, you're chill. But having said that, you scare the shit out of us. I mean, you're yep. and and so just do us a favor here in the beginning. Hold our hand, walk us through this, bring our heart rates down. Um, just Josh, don't wear I feel us like, like sock puppets. Yeah, I I feel like like there's something about having you on, Lynn. That it's like, what's more intimidating, Josh? This or like responding to a structure fire, fire blowing through the attic? I I don't know. It's kind oh, of the same feeling. Like this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, Lynn, certainly, that's certainly not how I try to go off. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, we said it before we click record. Your work has had a really profound impact on us, more than just us spending time on it. Uh, it's hard to, you know, we, we don't know where our brains end and your research begins. We've been inhaling your stuff so much. So, seriously, if you're in the audience, you're not reading Lynn Alden, you're not subscribed, you need to be because the signal's through the roof. Someone that's interested in Bitcoin, engaged in this community, but not trapped in groupthink. Um, last time you were here, you spent seven to ten minutes exploring viable risks. One of the, maybe the best segments we did in 2022, in our opinion. Maybe we'll do that again in this one. But we just we we appreciate not only what you say, but the way you say it, uh, and just the quantity of work you're putting out. How, seriously, how do you do it? Do you have any tips, strategies through the years that have allowed you to be this productive? intellectually and with your writing? I would kind of segment that into two parts. One is that if you like what you're doing, that's the kind of the classic boring answer. If you like what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work, so mm -hmm. you do it more. Right. Uh, and you do it productively. Uh, you don't just like slack off and look at the clock. You actually want to do as much as you can every day. And you wake up thinking, I want to do more today. Um, so that's number one. Number two is that I did sacrifice some of your work-life balance. I was just mm. so engaged in it, and then it grew faster than I thought, so I kind yeah. of doubled down on it. And so actually, one of my kind of overall plans now is that I'm just kind of – people are like, what are you going to do to grow in, like, 2023? I'm like, I'm not trying to grow in 2023. I'm trying to, like, consolidate, like, you know, yeah, do, right. do work-life balance, kind of fine-tune what I already do. And one thing I'm working on, for example, now is a book, but that means I'm going to be doing a little bit less articles, still still doing articles, but just kind of um, things that might otherwise be bar articles will instead be chapters in the book. Yeah. And the only tactical thing I have, um, aside from those kind of obvious ones, is that the way that I write articles is I write them in parallel. So uh, I'm usually working on multiple at a time. Mm. Um, and so I'll have like, say, five drafts sitting there. And whichever one is like really calling my attention at the moment, I will then work on 
And sometimes I get stuck. Like my, my What is Money article, I got stuck on that for like a few months. It was my longest article. I wasn't sure how to structure it. Um, and so I kind of would just put it aside until eventually, uh, you know, you get like a shower thought and then it clicks and then you, you revisit it. So that's that's one way that I avoid writer's block is that I, 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 I kind of, um, I don't just write them that week and then publish them. Usually they're a result of like part-time work over like a month or more and then they get published. So they get kind of, it's like, it's almost like sculpting. I, I kind of carve at it over time as, as the muse hits. I, I love that idea of kind of gravitating towards what you're motivated to for productivity. Interestingly enough, the person that changed my reading approach was Andreas Antonopoulos. When I first started reading him back in 2017, I think it was one of his lectures he gave. He said that the way he reads, very similar to how you say you write, is he has a ton of books going at once, and he just reads whatever he feels like because he's found through the years that that ups his reading cadence, his motivation, and ultimately the amount of information he takes in. Yeah. I've started to do that, but I haven't thought about that with writing. Uh, we both said we wish we had more time to write, and it, it's hard to just like you're motivated about a subject, but to get out, especially the type of long form stuff you're doing, to try to do that in like a week or two, just straight out. I can see the challenge there if if the the motivation kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah, Dan, what what you just said about reading, I do the same thing, and I. I try to make it okay for myself to walk away from a book if it just isn't hitting. Like yeah. it's okay to just walk away and not read it, because forcing yeah. yourself to read something is you're just not going to gain anything from it because you're not really paying attention. So right. I think that a, yeah, I think it's a good a good thing to strive to do to make sure that you're actually taking in the info. Exactly. So Lynn, we thought we might uh, start off this chat maybe a little different than you're accustomed to. It is our guess that much of our audience has read and listened to you potentially extensively on the macro Bitcoin front. Before we get into that deep stuff, which don't worry, folks, we're going to get there. Uh, we figured we might do a few minutes of Lynn Alden rapid fire questions that have absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin and macroeconomics. Uh, you down to just answer and feel free to pass on any of these, but you down to just answer some completely off the cuff random questions. Yeah, I'm up for it. Okay. Josh and I have separate sets. Josh, you fire first. All right, here we go. Uh, Lynn, I actually dug up something you wrote in 2017, um, and it was a lot about kind of your background, um, some of the homelessness, and then kind of the impetus for um, the engineering you did and how you kind of structured your budgets and things like that. And one of the things I found interesting about it is that you had a quote saying, uncertainty is the cause of suffering when you have like some homelessness or... Because you kind of used an example of people like to go camping, which is effectively pretending to be homeless. But the difference between the two of them is you understand that you're not actually homeless when you're just camping. But when you're, it's the it's the unknown of are you going to get some food in a week from now or two days from now that makes the difference. So what I'm wondering is is the impetus for all of your writing and uh, not prophesying about the future, not the word I want to use, but kind of predicting of the future and investing kind of that trying to keep trying to trying to remove that cause of suffering which is the unknown do you think that maybe that is a bit of an impetus for some of your work i i think to some degree i mean that that's kind of blending two different concepts so basically yeah that article was talking about uh you know when i was a child i was i was homeless for a period of time and then kind of grew up uh in in a trailer park after that so kind of different levels of you know the the lower rungs economically of, of society, and uh, to your point there, I, I kind of compared that. You know, it's not it's not just being, um, 
you know, it's not it's not directly being poor that's necessarily the problem. It's the uncertainty associated with it. At least, you know, when you're at a certain level where you can still, you know, you're still getting some degree of healthcare access, things like that. A lot of it is is if you can get your basics met. A lot of it is that. I think I've even seen it phrased like, you know, the, the wealthy man is not the person who has everything, but it's the person who wants very little, right? There's mm. different ways of phrasing that. Yeah. And essentially that, you know, minimalism and poverty are in many ways pretty similar. But the difference is that if it's on purpose, if you have the resources at your disposal, but you just, you know, you've kind of refined your taste down, you still have resources when you need them. You, you have them, you know, you're not suffering for lack of healthcare, you're not suffering for lack of things. You're not stressed by uncertainty where you're going to get your next meal. And so I, I think that's that's important for people. And then, yeah, I think overall, just I think I have a lot of interest in knowing how the world works. And so it's naturally that I want to follow certain things. I mean, I, I started out my investing approach. It kind of evolved over the years. I mean, the first things I ever collected uh, was as a kid was, was cash and gold coins and silver coins and things like that. And then I moved into equities. And when I started writing publicly, I started focusing on equities until I saw that how much wrong was, you know, going on with macro. Yeah. And I dug into that. And that's when I was like, that that took over my work, even though I still like equities, I still like other assets, but I focus so much on the macro because that's what I find so interesting, because it's about how the world works and mm-hmm. knowing how the world works and seeing how it worked in the past, how it might work in the future. And I just find that profoundly more interesting than saying, okay, stock A is more interesting than stock B. Right. Yeah. Okay. Question two. Uh, if you had to completely change vocations, it can't be engineering, can't, you can't be a macro analyst, what would you do? Probably something outside. <laughs> All of my stuff involves like sitting on a computer and like doing stuff. Um, so I'd want to do something outside. I'm just not sure I'd have the right skill set for it, but I would try to figure it out. Maybe I would get into, um, it's not really outside, but maybe I would get into nutrition or fitness. Mm, yeah. um, because... Um, like uh, my first ever job was assistant martial arts instructor. Uh, so I have some degree of, you know, just prior background with that. And um, I, before I went down, like say the macro rabbit hole. So I, basically it's my, my order of rabbit holes was something like nutrition rabbit hole and then macro rabbit hole and then Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, so a lot of people, it's funny in the Bitcoin community, there's overlap there. So a lot of <laughs> overlap like that. hard. That Venn yeah, diagram you, is a very large overlap there. Yeah. yeah, you read the white paper and then you're talking about like a year later, you're like ranting about seed oils. <laughs> and uh, whereas for me, it's it's, it's the still, reverse. I was like, I was ranting about seed oils before I, we I dug get into, into seed the, oils. We should do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's something I've I I still haven't gone down that rabbit hole, and I don't. I'm a, I'm taking pause before I decide to do anything that aggressive because it seems like a deep one that i'm just don't have the time for it i'm not ready for it i don't have the bandwidth for it that was my earlier rabbit hole and so basically i I think i would like to get involved with health related things not not in the medical sense but in the lifestyle sense uh you spend more time i i spent a lot of time looking at all those studies back then and i would like to i like to have more time to do that so i think if i ever gave up macro and all this i would i would probably go back to that because it, it really changes people's lives I mean, I actually wrote the one, I wrote like one non-financial article, which was like basically like a how to boost your energy. And it's, it's like basically a health and fitness article. Mm. And it's just like, it's like a 9,000 word article that I wrote like six years ago or something like that. And I still get emails from people that are like, Hey, like I did this and like it cured like my bipolar or something. Like, I don't know, just like insane things where they, they were eating like a standard diet and then they tried, you know, like, let me just see. If, see if I eat like meat and vegetables and cut out this and yeah. and do this and like it was like a profound difference and 
so that's actually like you know it's a high impact thing if if you get into it and you and you you know you can change people's lives with it yeah uh all right i'll send off another one another one at you so this is funny in that same article you talked about the art of practicing discomfort and how that's important and i've I listen to Joe Rogan a lot and he mentions the same thing. Like he talks about how getting up in front of a group of people and trying to be a stand-up comic, there's so much stress, so much discomfort associated with that, that just doing it is healthy for people because it makes everything else a lot less stressful when you've done that. And for you, it sounds a lot like the MMA fighting that you've done in the past kind of provided that same uh, ability to you. Whereas it's a lot less stressful maybe to get up in front of a group of people because you've had your ass kicked. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the MMA fighting, some of the injuries and some of the, and some of how that has shaped you and the person you are? Sure. So when I, you know, when I, the reason I was homeless as a kid, I was with my mom and we were homeless together. And eventually I, I changed custody and went over to live with my father. And that's when I shifted from being homeless to being in a, in a trailer park. And he, um, uh, he was a police officer. Um, that was his first career. And then he got into, uh, he, his second career was, uh, as an alcohol counselor. So, so helping people get over addictions. Um, so he had two different, uh, kind of, uh, professions at the time. But anyway, um, he, I basically had like, um, like trouble focusing. Um, it was just kind of, I was in a weird environment. Like I missed like part of school, like my school got disrupted, uh, like my kind of kindergarten and like early first grade got like disrupted. And so he just he thought that I would it'd be good to have like a disciplined environment, and then also it was a weird thing because he was a, a single father at that point he was almost sixty, uh, trying to raise this like kid that he has now, and he had to go to work and just like kind of leave me home when I was like young, and so like I'd go to the bus stop and there's like bullies there and like you know it's just it was just not like it's something that doesn't really happen today it's not it's like the opposite of helicopter parenting but it was out of necessity yeah and um so he he just for a variety of reasons put me in martial arts and so and i had i had no intrinsic talent at it i mean i wasn't just like a fish in water like i i just i just kind of was like you know i i, I did other things i did like soccer uh wasn't very good at that that didn't really stick but for whatever reason martial arts like i just did it every single week almost without fail for the next like 12 years like and and then you know after a few years it was like like every other day and then for at the peak it was like six days a week or five days a week and uh, from there basically I got you know I got pretty competitive I would do some tournaments I would you know I would I would strive to get higher ranks um, I eventually would would change schools because I was in a small school um, and even the instructor wasn't very like high ranked and so I I, I kind of shifted to a I would drive a half an hour away to go to a a larger school with like a master that can like you know he, basically other instructors go to him to learn mm -hmm. and so I had to kind of you know, I kind of just had that the whole path and but through through it I mean I broke my thumb like my thumb still like makes like clicking noises mm -hmm. um I broke my but the biggest injury I had was I broke my left knee um uh, like I technically I fractured the femur right over the knee and I was really lucky because I didn't uh, first when I went to the doctor, they thought I had like torn ligaments and it would have been, you know, surgery. Yeah. And they, you know, after they did all the scans, they were like, great news, your leg's broken. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, yeah. you, you pulled like everything, but you didn't break any ligaments. Oh, yeah. And instead you just have like a fracture. So they, you know, they, they basically re with a brace and things like that, I was able to heal pretty easily. Um, but, it, you know, it still lingers a little bit. Sure. Um, and then I just had, you know, I had some head injuries and had some... <laughs> This thing's built up over time, but I think all of it was worth it. Yeah, how was the guy's face that you need? Was that pretty? Was that pretty messy? 
Oh, that one. <laughs> the way I broke my knee, I was, it was funny. I was fighting someone who I fight all the time, but I just got kicked in the side of the knee and it gave out. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Here's my next one. If we asked your significant other, what little thing about you irritates them the most? What would they say? One would probably just be workaholicism. Okay. Going back to the prior question about work-life balance. Um, I think another thing is that I just, I don't, I'm so focused on the things that I miss a lot of details. So like, I'm really not detail oriented in a lot of things. Uh, number three is like, if that's I say something, that's hard to believe, but go on. Sorry. To we'll believe like you. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm detailed. I'm detailed in certain areas, but then it kind of like it, it consumes so much bandwidth that I ended up not being detailed in others. I, I think another a small thing is that like, I like all say something and he'll, he'll be like, what was that last part? And like, I don't know exactly what he, didn't hear so like i'll kind of repeat the last like three sentences almost like clockwork and he's like i didn't need the whole thing i just needed like the last half of the last <laughs> sentence and it's like i it's like for years it's just like because I, I don't know where he didn't hear it and i i always default to like repeating too much and he, it drives him crazy you know what i'm similar in the like i am on paper very type a and in a lot of it a lot of people that meet me initially would never suppose that i am a, i can be a massive space cadet now, guys that work with me, under, I leave shit at the firehouse seriously every fucking duty day. I'm like, hey, can somebody find my water bottle or my toiletry bag or whatever? But yet I'm a very organized person. It's like I, I resonate with what you said where my energy is so focused in certain areas that I just completely gray out on the periphery and do all kinds of dumb shit. Yeah, I, we were all guilty of that. But yeah, I'm nowhere near as organized. Dan and I kind of compliment compliment each other a bit in that or in that way because we're kind of polar opposites in a lot of ways. Josh is basically now my significant other. We both have wives, but we uh, almost yeah. spend the same amount of time together as with our wives here. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of jokes flying around about that between our wives. I think too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets uncomfortable. Couple more, and then we'll get <laughs> into it. Josh, you go. I'll do one more, and then we'll we'll get into the meat and potatoes. No, just one more comment. I had. Um, about the, the that piece I thought was really good that you had written, Lynn, and something else that you had in that piece was that enjoyment in life is much more dependent on who you are with than what you can purchase. And I thought that was impactful. It's not even really a question. And if you want to go on about that, you can. But I just think that that is on its face obvious to people. But I don't think a lot of people really take that to heart and understand it. Like envy, I think, who is it? Uh, Charlie Munger said envy drives the world. Everyone's jealous or envious of whatever someone else has. And I think that for a lot of people is true. But if they realize that, you know, it's about, it's about who you're with when you're on this vacation, not about where you're going type thing. It's, uh, it's a very impactful thing to truly understand. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, people imagine like, you know, vacations they had when they were kids, right? And it's like, you know, they're often simple vacations. You went to the beach, you went to the, you went camping, you know, yeah. and like they stick with you forever. Uh, you know, you didn't go to like the Ritz Carlton. Right. Um, and so it's like, I, I think the whole, the whole point of that part of the piece was that, you know, it's not about like, you know, luxury. It's not about like cars. It's not about things like that. You know, trying like, why do I focus so much on building wealth and, and talking about money and talking about equities and talking about assets and things like that? It's not because it's not so that people can then buy a bigger house or buy more cars. It's so they can be more secure uh, to understand what they own um and basically to have that that security right so it's it's much more peace of mind to have time and to have resources to fix problems mm. um then and then and then to live more simply and just more consciously 
um, than to, you know, just try to consume more. So true. Yeah. I, I, that, and it's an, it's a powerful theme coming from someone that, you know, spends their, their day job is studying micro markets and finance. We feel the same way, you know, making good decisions and investing is about freedom not yeah. necessarily just sitting on coins. You know, the They're, same thing with Bitcoin. If, if it's all about wealth generation, you are going to be left wanting. I, I yeah. promise you. There needs to be some end, end goal been, there. There have been many studies that have indicated that there is a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of income. And above that, you're just not going to be much happier. People, Everyone's kind of got a baseline of happiness. And they've even done this study on people that have won the lottery. There, you know, It's a 10 out of 10 happiness when you win the lottery. But if you fall back to your baseline after six months to a year. And then most people go broke after winning the lottery anyway. So it yeah. doesn't really matter effectively. Uh, unsubstantiated claim here, but I think it could hit for some people. I think there's a possibility that career firefighting is in the Goldilocks zone. Like we make enough money to provide for our families, but but not, and it's, it's, a, it's at a consistent cadence and it's not so much that it kind of consumes us completely. Like I think... And that, that's not to say that people shouldn't go hustle and be entrepreneurs and, and go make more. But I think it's a testament, like by and large, people that do our career are content, have enough to provide for their families. And um, there's, there's, there's something to be said for diminishing returns, especially if it's soaking up time you don't want to spend. 100%. Yeah, I've also seen studies that people, um, professions that where you get immediate feedback are good for people's mm. psychology and happiness, right? So even like uh, if you cut hair for a living, right? you're not like building up this thing over the long term you're you're getting a neat immediate feedback for what you're doing yeah. you're, you may you mm -hmm. cut someone's hair they're happy you're happy um and I, I think the same would be true for firefighting and, and work like that that basically you know you're going out you know day after day week after week uh you know dealing with incidents and stuff like that and you're getting immediate feedback for what you're doing and then you're you know you know the people at the firehouse like you're socializing you're getting all the things that like a human needs uh, as part of their their yeah. work um, whereas, you know, if you feel like, for example, finance is sometimes a very, not, not the happiest profession, even though people might be making more money if they're working on wall street, they feel like, you know, at the end of the day, like, wh what have I done exactly? Like, uh, who have I helped or, you know, what is kind of the, the long impact of this? Is there any impact versus someone who just goes out and, and does something, build something, help someone, mm. something like that? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thinking about it from that perspective, you don't get the feedback nearly as quickly in finance. All right, last question here. Uh, what is your least favorite smell, Lynn? <laughs> That's a strange one, Dan. <laughs> That's cigarettes. The point. Cigarettes. I don't, like, I don't like cigarette smell. I'm super sensitive to it. Okay. I hate it. It's a good answer. All right, let's pivot. Josh, where are we going here? You start us. Um, yeah, I think we, uh, we did a fine job exploring that. All right, so what are the standout economic Bitcoin or crypto events takeaways in your mind, Lynn, from 2022? Well, I think I think the obvious answer is all the rehypothecation blowing up, all the leverage blowing up, yeah. um, how intertwined the whole lending industry was. Um, you know, I knew that some aspects of it were very dangerous, but like basically, as even basically as bad as you thought it was, it, it was, was worse. worse. Yeah, that's kind of the answer, <laughs> right? So yes. I, I think, and and it's kind of like what can blow up eventually will blow up uh you know basically what what is bad will eventually have to blow up and so it's kind of 
inevitable that this had to happen given how bad it was. Yeah. Um, I, and it's combined with the fact that it's an observation I made before. So a lot of people focus on Bitcoin having cycles and things like that as price drivers. And of course, you know, the, the ongoing supply reduction of Bitcoin is important. But, but the more, you know, if you look at correlations for Bitcoin's timing, it's really about liquidity. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, Bitcoin has, you know, for the past three cycles or so been about the purest liquidity play that you could do. Um, and so basically when you, when you know, there's different ways to measure liquidity, but essentially when liquidity is rising on a global basis, that's generally when you get a Bitcoin bull market. And when liquidity is falling on a global basis, that's when you get a Bitcoin, you know, flat or bear market. And that's also when all coins blow up, leverage blows up, people get wrecked. And so this has just been a, this has been a particularly brutal version of, of one of those cycles playing out just because this time you know, kind of the, the malinvestment was leverage-based and, yeah. and kind of lending-based. There are two um, two kind of pillars standing still that I think a lot of people have questions about, and I'm wondering if you have any opinion on either of them. One of them being Binance, and the other one being... Um, uh, Grayscale? Sorry, no, oh, I'm, tether. I'm thinking okay. Tether. So, uh, yeah, between the two of them, do you have any opinions on if they have the ability to survive in the long term or if there's possibly more question marks ready for those guys well i don't think that you should trust almost any institution in the space um it's still a new space it's it's a very volatile space um and i think a third one you have to add in there's a digital currency group right mm, so the yeah. owner of genesis um and so I, I i guess i i would have questions about all of them to varying degrees right um i i do think that overall the bitfinex tether group is doing more interesting work um you know, basically that I, I, I do think that tethers, you know, there's always been questions around, you know, how, how um, you know, transparent can you make it? Uh, you know, is anything uncouth happening there? There have been, you know, just explorations about their past, things like that. It goes back to the whole period where if you worked in crypto, it's very hard to interact with banks. And so you'd often right. have to just basically get pushed into the periphery. Um, and, you know, they, they've done a better job over the long term of increasing their transparency and their communication um i think there's still somewhere to go they, they, they could for example list all the qsips um of the treasures they hold that that it's kind of where the industry's going but if you look at the other things that they do or at least some of the same people involved in some of the same organizations they're they're building really cool peer-to-peer -peer technology uh they're doing keat hole punch um uh you know that they they've just they've done a lot of work uh in the space and so i i think they're the ones I'm most constructive on, even though I, you know, I think there's no stable coin that you can just fully trust. Um, you know, just, it, it's, it's always going to have some degree of counterparty risk. And so you should kind of do your own homework. Um, for Binance, you know, that's, they claim to have no leverage, um, but there can be hidden sources of leverage. Um, you know, some of the things they've done are somewhat sketchy and this the sheer size of it is concerning and who it would impact is concerning if they were to fail in some way because for example you know you'd have a lot of people in developing countries um have assets with them a lot of times people use them as a neobank they 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 buy stable coins and they just hold them at binance um or they speculate in cryptos or they hold bitcoin at, at binance um and so you know i think that's a concern um i i think in some ways you know they serve markets that are other, otherwise challenging to serve. That that's what these offshore exchanges do. So if you use them appropriately, you know, like if someone from a country says, you know, that, that maybe doesn't have a local exchange um, and they have trouble getting into, you know, some other exchanges, 
it's like, well, go buy in Binance and take it in cold storage, right? right. And or or one of the similar ones. Um, and so I I think those those offshore exchanges serve a purpose. Uh, it's just you have to you have to treat them for what they are. You have to be you know cautious about them. And I think that there's no nothing is unquestionable in the space. Everything should be questioned and tested and poked. Um, and and then trying yeah. to and then you should try to trust minimize it by taking custody if you can. For sure, you, I, I think that's a great point though about we're, we're thinking this through from a first world really good financial infrastructure perspective, right? For for a lot of people, the Binances of the world are their path to cold stored Bitcoin, right? And that just is what it is in terms of the access that they have. So throwing stones is a little more complicated when you when you zoom out on the global stage. Yeah. One thing before we get off this topic, um, I'm sure both of you guys saw yesterday, I forget the guy's name, but he is a Bitcoin developer who had some Bitcoin stolen out of a hot wallet on his computer. And CZ... CZ and Udi were both quick to jump on this and say, see, this is why you shouldn't be cold storing your Bitcoin, even though this clearly wasn't cold stored. And the guy, I, don't, I mean, anyone can screw up. I don't know what the, all the details surrounding it are, but it's kind of interesting that these guys are jumping on the bandwagon to tell people you should keep all of your stuff with central you know, custodians because that's safer after we watched this last year unfold, which clearly if you have the basic ability to just buy like a treasure or a cold card, you can say you can keep this stuff much safer yourself than it will be on one of these centralized exchanges. I just thought it was an interesting thing that CZ and Udi would jump on this right off the bat to say this is a terrible idea to cold store. Have you looked into that incident at all, Lynn? I have just because it's curious. I'm not I'm not um, technical enough to know exactly what went wrong. I mean, even even the the, the core dev that it happened to says he doesn't know what went, went wrong yet. Um, but it, it's clearly a very complicated setup. Um, yeah. you know, if he, like, uh, if he just had his funds in a cold card and then backed up by steel, yeah. um, I don't think it would have happened to him. Um, so I think that there are safe ways of self custody. Uh, it takes a little bit of time to learn and do it right. You want to test with small amounts. Uh, you want to make sure you have backups. Um, so there, there's, you know, you don't want to overcomplicate your setup because that's, that's what can happen. Uh, you don't want to overthink it. You want to think it, but you don't want to overthink it. You want yeah. to just you want to keep right. it simple, uh, because everybody wants to everybody wants to optimize for like, you know, what if like uh, attackers come at night and like you know it's like well that's yeah. it, it's far more e like easy that you're gonna either screw it up yourself or that you know you're gonna get hacked somehow, um, and so you want to keep your setup straightforward. Um, and if you do that, I think it can be quite safe. And I also I, I think that it's really cool to see that multisig is getting more and more easy to do for sure and i and mm -hmm. i do think especially for large amounts people should consider things like collaborative custody you know where Unchainly. like you know you yep. hold yeah you hold the majority of the keys they hold a key it helps for estate planning you know uh inheritance things like that we're still not really trusting a third party but you have some degree of of um you know kind of error resistance built in you know if you lose one of your keys uh, even the backup you know they you still have some some degree of recourse and so i i do think there are risks associated with self-custody but it's 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 not as hard as people make it out to be um and it is safer than just about everything else you can do and you know people i i i don't know who originally thought of it but like they point out that like you know sending a wire transfer is super hard like uh, annoying compared to like you know sending a bitcoin transaction and the funniest example I saw was like someone's like, you know, checks, right? 
they're like, this technology is never going to catch on. You have to like write the number and then you have to like write the number a second time, uh-huh. right? In English. And then it's like, who would use this technology? And of course it's, it was common technology and now it's getting phased out, but it's like Bitcoin technology is really not any more complex than the other financial things we interact with. It's just new. And it's, and the only kind of um, caveat there is that there are like non-recourse ways you can screw up. Right. Whereas a lot of fiat things, if you screw up, I mean, it's all it's all monopoly money anyway, so it can be like you know it can be fixed for you. Right. But you know if you if you you know if you bury gold out somewhere, you better know where you buried it, otherwise you're not gonna no one can fix that for you. Yep. And if you self custody your Bitcoin, you mess it up, no one can really fix it for you. So it does take some personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. But I I I think it's I, I think it's a shame when people jump on self custody when you have kind of edge cases of of something happening with. It is. I just wanted to comment on what you just said there. The the knowledge that there are ways where you can screw this up bad enough to where it's just gone. It's just, it's, it's reality. It's physics. Like there are certain things you can do. You can step off of a cliff and you are going to die. There is no recourse. There is no way to stop this from happening. Once you've started to, you know, once the boulder is going down that hill, it's going. I just think it's interesting. It's that just this, math. Yeah, exactly. It's just math. It's just physics. And Bitcoin has got no, uh, you know, there's there's no forgiveness if you screw it up because it's reality. It's the real world, not like the fiat system where, oh, it's okay you screwed it up. We can fix it for you because it's not real. It's it's something we can just change the rules on whenever we feel like. But Lynn, your your point, can't, we can't repeat it enough on this show. I mean, we are obviously cold storage forward. Our longest standing sponsor is CoinKite, and we've used cold cards forever. We believe in this stuff, but you are only as strong as your weakest link, which is typically your inheritance plan, unless you want to donate to the protocol and network. Hmm. And that's where not getting out over your skis, collaborative custody, you've got to find a workable solution that you are confident your next of kin or your kids are going to be able to handle. Someone at work yesterday is getting super excited about this. They were asking me all about it wanting to order a cold card. I'm like, that's all great. But you, you do need to take baby steps and make sure you and your girlfriend or your, your whatever are, or your wife or your kids know how to work this, because this is one of those things that you kind of get manic excited about Bitcoin. You accumulate a bunch of it and then, oh yeah, in seven years, there's a problem. So just worth repeating. The other thing I wanted to double back to while we're talking about crypto land before we get off it, Something I really appreciated from your recent piece, The Problems with DeFi and Crypto, was you talked some about this problem with arbitrary seniorage in crypto land. So basically, the difference between the typical startup model where investors are are actually tied to fundamentals and unregistered security crypto land where that, that connection is severed. Can you explore that for our audience and why you think that's significant? Sure. It's a difference in exit liquidity. Um, and so if you start, if you do a startup, um, you know, there, there's really only two main ways that it, as a founder, you're going to get enriched, uh, from what you did. One is, um, that, you know, you build something that is good enough and big enough and, and, and goes on long enough to go public, right? So it goes through, a, a, a you know, a kind of a scrutinizing process that has to reveal its books. Um, they have to disclose, you know, who owns the major equity, who, you know, who, who the board is, um, you know, details, risks, uh, uh, detailed risks. And the average time to do that is something like eight years. Uh, and of course, most don't make it to that phase. Most fail before they before they go public or, you know, they, they fail in a limited way or they, you know, they run into growth headwinds or they, they perceive that, you know, there may be not a big enough thing to go public. And so they get acquired. 
right? And so in, in that case, you know, a bunch of like serious people wearing suits, like analyze your business and decide that they want to buy it and like, you know, tuck it into their bigger business. And so again, it goes through this like professional diligence process. Um, and it's not quick and it's not, you're not just like dumping it. Whereas with crypto, you know, you have a lot of people that they, they quote unquote found a, a project. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a company and they'll do like lockup periods where like, you know, founders and early investors have to hold on for like a year or two years or something like that, three years. Uh, but then they get it listed on exchange and then they dump it before it's like a company, before it's like a self-sustaining long-term thing that either is acquirable or is actually a company that can go public, right? And so they they can they can separate the founders and the early investors getting rich from the underlying success of that project. And mm. of course, that that can happen in startup world. I mean, you can go public and then blow up, right? right. Uh, but at least it's a longer term thing. You, there's there's more meat there, right? right? There's usually something there. There's some there there. Uh, whereas in crypto, that whole thing is accelerated and amplified and put on steroids. And it's it's the norm rather than the exception, where just you, you just have a complete detachment from what happens to the early people versus what happens when it actually is out there. Uh, and seniors refers to essentially, in the broad scope, anytime there's money that someone can print that another person can't. If you're the printer, you have the power of seniorage. Right. And if you go back to, for example, early commodity monies, you know, the reason they work is because everyone's kind of on the same page technically. No one can make more of it compared to someone else, or at least not by any meaningful degree. But if you, for example, you know, if you're if you have tribal technology and someone comes across the ocean with like, you know, metal tools and they can they can make more of the commodity money that you thought was rare. They essentially have senior seniors over you. They can print more of your money for a very low cost relative to its current market value, and they can screw you over. Uh, and until you realize that, you're you're you know you're going to get owned by them. Uh, the same thing obviously happens with fiat currency. That's where it's most often applied. Where you know it doesn't cost anything to to print a hundred dollar bill. Essentially, it doesn't cost at least it doesn't cost a hundred dollars. Um, and you know, but they can just keep creating more of these, and they're only kind of bound by their own laws. Uh, and institutions and, and kind of checks and balances for how, you know, the money supply grows. Um, and, you know, uh, crypto is kind of the same way, right? Where the, the, you know, basically they can do a pre-mine, they can, they can create more of their token and they can benefit whereas other people can't. Whereas something like gold or something like Bitcoin, there's nobody who can cheat. That's kind of the whole point that everybody makes it for the cost that it's made at. There's no like, you know, handouts. There's no like special treatment. Mm -hmm. It just is what it is. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit. I'm re I'm currently reading a book called The Price of Time. I think the author's Chancellor. I forget what his first name. It's phenomenal. I'm like a third way through, but he spends time in this book talking about like the over proliferation of unicorn companies in low interest rate environments. Basically, like the cost of capital gets broken. People are in desperate search for yield. And so you get these these growth companies that are just preposterously overvalued given their current fundamentals and then end up Doesn't not delivering at all end up not delivering and there's enormous capital destruction it's like crypto's doing that a lot of these crypto tokens and companies are doing that but on steroids exactly yeah they're doing it without basically without any sort of real like safeguards basically and without and, effectively and, producing anything of value yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah at least Uber's doing yeah. something you exactly. know what i mean yeah. like yeah, the main issue with a lot of these Silicon Valley actual startups is not that their product was useless, but that it, it was 
it, it grew faster than it should have because they weren't pricing it properly because instead they were able to fund their business by issuing more and more overvalued equity. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the artificial layer there is not that the product was bad, but that it was just it was it was not priced properly and not sustainable at, at that current rate. Um, and so now, now, for example, you're seeing much higher Uber prices uh, just because it's, it has to start reflecting reality and, and, and stop losing money. Um, whereas in crypto, it's just it's 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 more detached. There's there's usually no there there, um, and even the Steelman cases for what some of this could be used for, it's just not that's not really where the volume's coming from. It's coming from the speculation and the pump and dumps and just kind of um you know it's kind of the the wild west of you know, screwing retail over essentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan, unless you have anything else on that, I think we should go to some of Lynn's predictions for 2023 here. Let's do it. What do you, what do you think in, I mean, there's so, there's a huge gamut of ways we could talk about this, but just for maybe like a 30,000 foot view, Lynn, where do you see markets in general? You think the fed is going to have to do anything significant this year or can they stay on course? So I think it comes down to, whether or not the U.S. enters recession or not, right? So we have a lot of indicators flashing recession, including the yield curve and others. Um, but this is also an unusual environment compared to the last few decades. Yeah. And you st- and what makes it different is that you have a lot of money just still pouring into the private sector. Basically, the federal deficit, when you flip it upside down, is a surplus for the private sector. And it's funny because that'll often be described as a good thing um, by, say, MMT advocates right they're like no it's not a deficit it's a surplus depending on who you look at but of course when you, when you look at through the lens of say inflation that's not necessarily a good thing that that's part of how money creation happens uh through through basically deficits and so overall we have a lot of tightening um in the economy and it really impacted the housing market the most and i think it's going to keep rippling through it you know it impacted housing it also impacted tech as we just talked about because now that there's actually a cost of capital some of these hyper growth companies are not hyper growth and so they had to lay a lot of people off um and so i i do think we're in a very slow growing economic environment we're at risk of a recession uh and then the issue there is that most people are looking at it like a traditional recession where like banks blow up and you know just the economy gets crushed uh, whereas I'm looking at a lot of the risks more in the public sector that, mm, you know, as, yeah. as the economy slows down, uh, tax revenue starts to fall, right? So if you look at California, for example, they went from a massive surplus to a massive deficit practically overnight, yeah. um, uh, you know, from 2021 compared to 2022, because, you know, when asset prices are not continually rising and, and you know, uh, former Fed chairman Greenspan talked about this, he, he, he has, he has a bunch of quotes out there that are like oddly like honest, yeah. And like this is one of them. He's like he's like when when equities are not rising, not even doing flat, but they're not just constantly rising, uh basically the tax revenue also starts to suffer uh because we're we're such a financialized economy. And so when you're running, you know, a deficit's over a trillion dollars and then you're trying to tighten the economy and asset prices are like flat to down, uh that also means the tax revenue is going to struggle. And then you have to issue more treasuries because they're not going to cut spending. Uh, especially in a in a kind of a gridlocked uh, congressional environment, there's really no incentive to do that, and so basically they're kind of locked into this. And I think they're going to be locked into still pouring money in. So the Fed, you know, is pouring money into the banks uh, through the form of higher uh, interest on reserves. Uh, the fiscal authority is still pouring money into the private sector, and so I, I kind of just view this whole period as kind of a stagflationary type of environment that we're clearly disinflating from a high level in the sense that some areas of inflation are sharply rolling over as demand slows down. 
Um, but I think that this is still a longer term issue that we're in. So 2023, the way I'm looking at it is in a tactical sense, I'm looking at liquidity indicators. Um, some of the global ones are pointing kind of flat to up now, which is maybe the bull case, whereas domestic ones in the U.S. are still not looking good. Um, and so I, I, I still have a lot of concerns around the first half of 2023. Uh, but when I think you look out longer. I think this could be a longer grind your type of recession rather than like an everything blows up type recession. Yeah. Now, maybe last words, maybe things blow up. But <laughs> I think a last point I'd make there is that a lot of people fight the last battle. So they always, they, they assume the next recession is going to look like the prior recession. Yep. And so if we take out the COVID recession, because that was like a weird, you know, lockdown thing. If you take out that one, the last recession was 2008 in the US, um, that whole, you know, post global financial crisis uh, period. And in that one, the epicenter was the banks, right? So that was the end of a long-term debt cycle, or at least a long-term private debt cycle. And so banks went into that highly leveraged. Basically, they had very, they had a historically low percentage allocation to safe assets, or at least nominally safe assets like bank reserves and treasuries. And they were very out on their skis in terms of making aggressive loans. Uh, you'd have to go back to late 1929 to find a similar environment for how leverage banks were relative to the monetary base relative to all these different ways of looking at it uh and so they they were like the epicenter along with real estate that all blew up whereas you know now partially because of regulations partially because banks you know you, you don't really repeat the same thing twice in a row um and so now they they had this whole decade where they've been more reticent to lend uh they're forced to have higher you know amounts of treasuries and, and just reserves on hand, basically stronger cap, capital ratios, things like that. Yep. And so banks actually have historically high allocations to safe assets right. and you know historically lower allocations to subprime, to lending in general. And so while banks can absolutely suffer in a recession, I mean, they're, you know, they can get higher loan losses, um, their stocks can get you know, sh sent down. I don't view them as being the epicenter of the problem compared to how they were before. And instead I view I view inflation, energy, and and kind of um runaway deficits as more the epicenter this time, which which leads to a very different type of economic problems. It's not good. It's just different. Yeah. Um you mentioned Greenspan. I just wanted to touch on him for a second. Um his if I'm not mistaken, his thesis in school was written about the gold standard. And he made a lot of comments prior to being a Fed chief and then you know, consequently after being that were very different from the kinds of, uh, you know, verbal salad. And so that they, I think the actually made up the term fed speak while he was chairman. So I just think it's kind of an interesting thing. The, I, I guess it's really the, you know, what the carrot that is placed in front of somebody, like while you're the fed chairman, you have to kind of act a certain way, even if you don't maybe truly believe that's the right way to act just to make things move along. Kind of the way Dan and I always talk about, like, this is an incentive system built here that forces a lot of these people into a certain, um, kind of a certain box that they have to operate in. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing, one thing I appreciate about your work, uh, Groman does this really well, a lot of people do, but is, is not missing the big picture for the small. And that's like some of your work, I think maybe it was your November newsletter, which by the way, if you're interested in the fiscal conundrum that may confront us over the next decade, it's absolutely worth your read. One of your best newsletters of the year, I think. But basically that it's easy to get trapped in a bit of a shot fake here. And that's in inflationary decades, you know, even in the forties and the seventies, I've seen you think, I think do some charts there's spikes, you know what I mean? Inflation spikes, uh, policymakers respond, 
there's there's fits of deflation, but but holistically, the the decade can be inflationary. And and I think the question that you have begged for me now for a couple of years is just, and everyone in Bitcoin's been asking, but it's worth repeating as we go into 2023 is, who is going to buy the treasuries? Like there's less net foreign demand. The Fed is trying to tighten, so they're a net seller. You you highlighted recently the the Social Security Trust and them needing to raise cash, and then you you add in as Groman said, like when you get an when he was on with us and you just enumerated when you get a huge asset price bubble, capital gains go through the roof. You have a tax receipt bubble, which could pop. It, it, you you add these four things together and whatever else you want to add. Like who is going to buy the treasuries? And then as that you, you get into that answer, you you just start to realize. How is this going to play out other than monetization? Any any thoughts on that or, or follow up there? Yeah, I think it depends on the timeline you look at. So now that we got a huge spike in yields, there are some pools of capital that are interested in coming in, right? There's some, uh, a lot of it is like, say, domestic asset managers. Right, like our pension, um, for example. This yeah, is, this is might, looking juicy, yeah. Yeah, they might come in and say, okay, so that, that can give a little bit of runway. Uh, that, that's one answer. Uh, but the long-term answer is is probably the banking system in one way so either the central bank or they can change supplemental leverage ratios which is like jargon for basically saying that banks can leverage themselves more as long as it's treasuries right that there's ways that they can stuff more treasuries into the banking system if you look at at the 1940s um so like right now for example banks have a higher allocation of treasuries than they had at any time in modern history unless you go far, back far enough to the 50s and the 40s which they had an even higher allocation of treasuries because they were the primary financiers of, of World War II and, and the you know the past time that we got to these high debt to GDP ratios. Uh, and so it really comes down to, you know, that they can, as long as there are pensions and asset managers and insurance companies soaking up the bonds, they can just keep doing that. But if that starts to run into issues, that's when you have to turn these other dials, right? So for example, the, the repo spike in 2019 even though it, it on the surface was a repo problem, uh, repo was used by hedge funds to buy treasuries, right? And so a repo problem would quickly become a treasury problem. It was essentially at its root a T-bill oversupply problem hmm. back then. Uh, and so, you know, that's actually how I, I started to, my account on Fintwit got bigger. I, I was a small account back then, but I, I pointed out, I was just like, they're going to have to start buying T-bills. So everyone's focused on repo. And I was like, this is actually a treasury problem. They're going to have to start buying T-bills. And sure enough, three weeks later, you know, they were buying, the Fed was buying T-bills. And it's like, well, if it's a repo problem, why are you buying T-bills? And it's because it was actually a T-bill oversupply problem. Yeah. And so that was like sign one. Then it also happened in, in March 2020 during the COVID crash. Uh, you had the dollar spike, foreigners sell treasuries, treasury market broke, went illiquid, treasury had to step in, and Fed had to step in and buy a trillion dollars of treasuries in three weeks. It's basically a giant, like a liquidity bazooka going off. Yeah. Um, and so the the short end is they're going to try to let them stick wherever they can, uh, and that can work for a period of time. But then I think the longer run is that that probably the banks and the Fed have to buy more um, to keep the the rails on the on mm -hmm. the track. And the question becomes when. And I think that's right. that's kind of the trillion dollar question. Uh, I don't think it's right away, um, but I think it's it's you know throughout the 2020s, I think that the Fed's going to be buying more Treasuries. Uh, or they're going to do some, you know, regulatory shenanigans and get more treasuries on the commercial banking system, which essentially fulfills the same purpose. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people maybe a year or two ago that thought 
interest rates couldn't rise to the level they're at now because you know they have to issue bonds and the, the government has to pay for that um, interest rate throughout periods of time. I guess what I'm getting at here is for so from a very simple simple point of view, when people are thinking about these things, they think, okay, in order for someone else to be wanting to be buying these bonds, the interest rates have to go up to compensate someone for the the risk of inflation and all the other um, associated risks with buying these things. Can they allow these things go to the level that they got to in the '80s or the late '70s without um, without that being an issue for bonds? I mean, because so many people didn't think it could be there now, um, and it clearly is. Can this go to 10, 12%? And can it be survivable from that fiscal point of view, from them being able to roll these things over? I mean, both from, I guess, answer it both from the liquidity and the interest perspective. Because, you know, you've, you've mentioned those are two different things, maybe with two different timeframes, but especially on the liquidity front, there's an urgency that can transpire that requires action today, right? Yeah, that's what happened with the repo spike and the March um, 2020 um, Treasury crash. Those those were those were markets at the core of the system, and so when they broke, that that's where you get like Fed emergency meetings on the weekend, and then they step <laughs> in like uh, you know Monday morning and like start trying to solve it. Right. Yeah. That that's kind of the urgency with which they approach that compared to how they approach break, breakages in credit markets, which they might respond to within weeks, uh, versus breakages in the equity market that they can kind of ignore uh, until it spills out into the other. Um, buckets. Um, and so the, the way I've been phrasing it, uh, you know, back like a year ago when people were saying the Fed can't tighten, I kept trying to correct that and saying, okay, so I, I think they can't normalize, but they can tighten, which is a different way of phrasing it, which essentially that, you know, we're the wheels are off the car. We're not getting back to a, an environment of structurally positive real yields. Right? That's so what they I was can't just going to ask you. When you say normalize, that means you, they have to be beating inflation with the interest they're paying in bonds. On an ongoing basis, okay. right? Not for like a not for a quarter, not for a year, but to say, okay, you know, what that whole that was a crazy period. We're going to get back to normal now. We're going to get back to structurally positive real rates. Um, I think that's what we're, you know, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible, to get back to. That that would be far outside of my base case. If they can just normalize and get everything back in the box right. and just pr- pretend this whole thing never happened, right? So, that's yeah, some combination of forcing commercial banks to buy more. Um, uh, speaking of that, by the way, what was the, I guess, compared to now back in the 40s, was it a significant more bonds they were holding on, on their balance sheets, uh, those commercial banks? Or is it just, is it a lot more, I guess, is what I'm asking versus what they're holding right now? So it was moderately more. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but essentially, if you look at, say, 2008, which is like the low point, um, banks had, you know, like a single digit percent or like, you know, 10% of their assets were treasuries, for example, some, mm-hmm. some really low number. Yeah. And then let's say now it's, I don't have, again, I don't have it in front of me, but now it's like 30%. So that's okay. actually a huge difference when you go from 10% of your assets to 30% of your assets in treasuries. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be quoted on it, but I think they got up to something like 50% okay. during. So there's quite a bit of runway there. Too. Yeah. There was, there was still a lot of, it was still higher than it is now by a notable degree. Okay. Um, but it, you can actually argue that probably a 10 to 30% move is, a, is it, ratio-wise a bigger move than 30 to 50. Yeah. Um, but that, that's kind of the rough order magnitudes that we're talking about here. Another thing worth pointing out is that, you know, I would say e- that the level of tightening they were able to do this year without blowing up was more than I thought, for example. Like, I, I, I had trouble envisioning getting above 3%. Um, but one thing is that if you do it fast enough, you can kind of do anything for brief period of time, right? So most dead it's like Wiley rates, Coyote hanging out over the yeah over the cliff. The, the, yeah. the toxins take a while to enter the bloodstream, Len. Exactly, 
And, and so, you know, basically with most debt being fixed rate, you know, if you just spike up to like 8% tomorrow, like sure, no one's going to blow up like on Monday. But, you know, it's like what happens week after week, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, as more and more debt refinances at this higher rate. Um, another factor is how it compares to inflation. So, for example, the Fed was able to raise rates higher than my base case, but also inflation, even though I wrote extensively about expecting inflation, it reached a little bit higher than my base case. So real yields didn't really go up any higher than my base case. It's just that the whole both sides of the equation were both elevated yeah. compared to what I would have maybe guessed a year prior. Um, and so I think that has to be kept in mind that even after all this tightening, they're still technically below the, the trailing 12-month inflation rate. Um, of, of course, you're, you know, you're comparing a future yield to a, a past rate, um, but essentially that they're, they're still not tight on a lot of different ways of looking at tightness. And so the short answer is I don't think that they can do what Volcker did, which essentially raise rates super high and then also hold it into positive real rate territory for decades. That's something I think we're not going to see. Uh, whereas I think, of course, you can always have these empire strike back moments where you, you try to get the wheels back on the cart, you tighten. Uh, you crush asset prices, you get to uh, maybe briefly positive real rates, but then the economy can't really sustain itself in that environment. So I think that's that's kind of the balance that we're in, yeah. where well, you... I would describe it that I think we're in kind of flats up yields now, but that they're still going to, on average, be negative real yields. So you, if for the next decade or so, you expect quite a bit of volatility from these back and forth situations where they have to come to the rescue, maybe try to tighten it back up and rein things in. And are they? Do you think they're going to cause this whipsaw effect up and down quite a bit through through the next ten years? I think so. I think a lot of asset prices are probably going to have a, a choppy sideways decade. Yeah. Um, if you look back at prior inflationary periods, uh, whether there's high interest rates or low interest rates, they're usually choppy periods. So the '40s were very choppy periods for equities. Um, the '70s were very choppy periods for equities. Um, and I think that's likely to be the same for the 2020s, where you know, the, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ were over-owned going into this decade and especially the, you know, the first year or so when everyone was kind of locked at home. Um, and that's a very expensive over-owned set of assets. And I think that that's going to kind of bleed out over the long term in this choppy pattern. Um, and I think, you know, so bonds, stocks, a lot of assets, a lot of, you know, expensive real estate markets uh, uh, domestically and globally, I think are just going to have turbulence and and kind of sideways choppy returns uh, especially in inflation adjusted terms right um and i think that's going to be the challenge for a lot of investors and over time then that that compounds into problems for tax revenue totally yeah it's, it's important to zoom out for sure because it's easy to get caught and eat i know a year can feel like a long time frame but when you when you look back on your entire investment trajectory especially if you're younger like don't miss the forest for the trees to to quote Groman. Um, all right, let's pivot to Bitcoin. We want to get into your opinions on its valuation and if it's appetizing here. But before we do that, let's zoom out a little bit to what you've characterized in your, your recent newsletter as the world's money problem. Your December newsletter, I would basically just retitle it pointing people at the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, and it's a, it's a great intro resource for thoughtful people on what the issues here are. Start us off with the experiment you ran on Twitter and then kind of take it wherever you want. Maybe just high-level overview of that that newsletter, whatever stands out to you. So I asked people on Twitter, um, if you were in a country with a currency crisis, uh, basically a developing country, ongoing just currency crisis, and you, for whatever reason, had to sell your home and 
you couldn't buy a home right away. You had to like hold it for like two years, the money, and then buy a home, like say two years later. How would you go about it? What would, what would you save it in for those two years? And it's like, it should be, I mean, you know, in, in the 21st century, that should not be a hard problem to store value for two years in a stable way. Um, but the answer in a lot of those countries is that it's actually really hard to do because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I would just hold it in dollars. And I was like, where would you hold it in dollars? You know, if you're if you're an Egyptian citizen, for example, where would you hold it in dollars specifically? Would you do it in your offshore bank account? So now we're assuming that you're you're wealthy, so you're just implicitly assuming you're wealthy in my question. So okay, well, what if you're a middle class in Egypt? Where are you going to hold your your dollars? And it's like, are you going to hold it in a local Egyptian bank? Uh, they're currently facing a dollar shortage. Um, you know, a, a lot of countries, you know, around the world have a history of, you know. Uh, they, they look at their dollar accounts in their country and they say, okay, it's cute that you're holding dollars. We're going to go ahead and take those dollars. We're going to give you as many pesos and, and pounds and whatever the currency is, uh, you know, at the exchange rate we determine. So we're not really taking them, but, you know, just for, you know, crisis reasons, we have to take these dollars. Uh, and then you don't have dollars anymore and you're back in the local currency that gets, you know, inflated away. Um, you can hold physical cash if you can get it. Usually you're getting it at really bad exchange rates. And then you have a, a problem of where to store it. You know, you're holding your a house worth of paper, essentially tucked away somewhere in your apartment right. where you're, you're storing. Uh, or there's things like stable coins. Um, you know, that, that goes back to the whole kind of tether Binance, you know, these ways that, you know, stable coins are in some ways solving problems for people. But then you're relying on a foreign counterparty not to screw up, um, you know, with your, with your assets. So now you're saying, okay, it's centralized, but at least the central hub is outside of my country. So, you know, if I'm in Argentina, at least the Argentine government can't take my dollars. Right. You know, I'm, I'm relying on this external thing. There's also gold. But of course, you know, you have kind of the same problem with, with dollars, which is you can hold your life savings in gold in your like apartment. Um, and it just it just shows that, you know, basically this money problem is not easy. And I actually based that question on a real world example. I have extended family in Egypt that have a multifamily property that it's it's complicated to sell because they each own like a share of it. It's like they. It's like an apartment complex, like a small apartment complex where everybody's like family in the apartment complex and they want to sell it. And it's like, well, the problem is like someone has to spend time to figure out where they're going to move first. And you can't just like put it right into the next property. It's actually a complex situation. And it just, and, and like, you know, they were like, well, we're going to store it in Egyptian bonds. I'm like, you're going to, you're going to do what? <laughs> you're going to, I was like, let's talk first. Like, let's, let's explore some options because it showed, you know, that like the Egyptian pound lost like 40% of its value this year relative to the dollar, and that was, bef- you know, this was before that happened, right? I was I was concerned about that happening, um, and so the whole point of that whole question and the whole kind of exploration is that, you know, right now there's like 100 fiat, 180 fiat currencies in the world. Most of them suck. I mean, most of them just you know rapidly lose value frequently. The top you know, 20 or so lose value slowly. Um, and you're, you're kind of in these different jurisdictions. And if you happen to be born in one, that's just, it's not going well. And it's often not even that country's fault. It's often just the fact that they're the way this current system is designed. They're at the periphery of the system. So the volatility is pushed from those top 20 jurisdictions to them, uh, let alone any sort of mistakes that, that, that those countries make themselves. Um, and so you're stuck in this bad currency jurisdiction and there's really, despite the fact that it's the 21st century, you often have a payments and a savings problem, right? And so the, the savings problem comes from where you're going to put your money. 
um, without relying on all these counterparty risks or things that you know only wealthier people can access more easily. Uh, and then number two is that you know bank accounts can be frozen. You could face frictions when trying to move money overseas. Uh, there's just all these. It's like a giant barter system of like 180 different centralized yeah. ledgers that are friction interacting with each other. Uh, even on their best of days, it's not great. And in the worst of days, it's like authoritarianism or freezing your account because um, your social credit score dropped below minimum maintenance thresholds or whatever. And so it depends on how dystopian you want to get. And so basically the world has a payments and a savings problem, especially outside of the developed world, but even to some degree in the developed world. And so my whole point of that piece was, you know, a lot of people are focused on, oh, like crypto can revolutionize trading or crypto can do this. Or look, we can like, it's, it's like cool for like collectibles. And it's like, sure, around the margins, we'll see what happens. But really the, the, the prize to focus on is that the world has a money problem. It has a bad money problem. It has, there's, there's, you know, we've, we've fractured the system so much just through the order of technological growth we've had. Uh, and so now we have this like barter system out there and the world needs better money uh, including savings and payments. And I think that Bitcoin basically is is the long-term, at least the best shot we have. Let's put it that way. I mean, our, our current monetary system is just startlingly anachronistic. I mean, I, I do think that my children or my children's children will look back on the current fiat monetary system the way we, we view horse and buggy. It's going to seem that far-fetched. One part of you trending monetary history a little bit that, I, that I, I thought was phrased in a way I hadn't heard before was this uh, velocity mismatch between uh, commerce and forms of money and then maybe how Bitcoin rectifies that mis mismatch. Can you pull on that thread here briefly? Sure. I think that's a difference I have with, with some people in the space, both um, kind of just different sound money groups, whether it's gold bugs or Bitcoiners. They often describe fiat as like a moral failing. You know, like if only we had stayed on the gold standard, yes. if only we had stuck with sound money. Whereas my view was when you look at a world with a hundred, you know, 200 different countries and every single one of them is off the gold standard and every single one of them has this like, you know, de decaying like fiat centralized ledger. You're like, well, how did we get to this point? Clearly something went wrong, you know, that that was more than just a moral failing. And the way I describe it is it was in some ways a technological inevitability just because of the order that technology developed. So basically for thousands of years, commerce and money moved at the same speed, right? A gold coin or even like a banknote could only physically move at, this, at the speed of, you know, walking, horses, ships, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had all these just bare assets moving around. Um, and even with the invention of ledgers and stuff like that, the ledger still can't physically move faster than those things. Um, and in the 1800s, when you invented telecommunication systems, right? So you could update ledgers globally. And so global commerce could start to happen. Right. You've, you've, you've severed, you, you've, you've radically increased the speed of commerce while the speed of settlement with bare assets is still much, much slower. Mm. And so that opens all sorts of arbitrage. It gives way more power to centralized policymakers to, you know, basically mess with the ledger, for example. Mm. Um, and it's a temptation that is like, you know, it's it's there and like everybody takes it because even if if you're not if you're the one that doesn't take it probably someone's going to use the fact that you didn't take it against you exactly um, yep. and so it kind of just spreads like a virus and you know that's and then so the only alternative to these systems you have these all these different fiat currency systems and you have an alternative which is gold but gold can't move around as fast so it kind of it can solve the savings problem part for some people but it can't really fix the payments problem 
uh, and it, it just kind of fully can't keep up. Um, and so what I find interesting about Bitcoin is that it's the first solution that really is, is a serious attempt at solving this mismatch and says, okay, so you know, here's a, a bare asset hard money that also moves around at the same speed of telecommunications. Um, and that, you know, it basically that, that payments can now happen as fast as global commerce can, uh, and that can be final settled, depending on how you want to define it, within seconds, minutes, hours, uh, rather than, you know, what is the, what is the cost, cost and time of settling with gold, you know, let alone even fiat has, has kind of slow settlement times. And so I, I think that really the, the reason we're in this world of 180 different fiat jurisdictions is because we've had a technological problem that has remained unsolved for over a century that is now arguably solved. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That mismatches and gold and Bitcoin being so parallel to each other and being able to move at the speed of light. And that is um, that's something I hadn't heard before I'd read that piece either. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. When, and it's a more fair characterization of the historical trend like people it's not, just it's not like people, people are just evil. outright criminals you, you know right. who actually did a good job walking through this in their most recent book was Safedine. in the fiat standard i think he really tried to put the the other hat on and say in its date and time paper money served a, a really strong necessary profound purpose for the expansion of mankind and the velocity of money mm. now that's outdated and we need an upgrade but yeah you kind of have to give credit where credit's due in history and, and to just phrase the whole thing as a, as a giant evil trap is, isn't fair. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we should, uh, Dan, we got to start pivoting into a couple of important topics here. We're, we're really bleeding for time. Here. <sighs> fourth right, quarter so, here. Yeah, fourth quarter. We got to no timeouts, man. We got to go. All right, so a couple of things. I'm, I'm wondering this, this is kind of off the top of my, off the top of my head, the uh, if the Fed can continue on this pace, so let's just say for the next two years, do you think that Bitcoin does what it's traditionally done every four years, which is do this crazy massive bull run? Do you think it can do that even in this um, kind of new parallel of the of the Fed raising interest rates? Can it actually happen, or do you think it's unlikely to happen in in the uh, climate we're in? So I think the short answer is going to it's going to depend on liquidity. And so if you look back at 2017, the whole 2017 massive Bitcoin bull run, the Fed was raising rates through 2017. Uh, and you know historically, when the Fed raised rates, they raised it into strength, right? Mm -hmm. So there was like a rising economic environment, more liquidity, and they raised um, you know uh, rates into that. And that was also a strong year, 2017, for emerging markets uh, because the dollar got very strong. The dollar index compared to other currencies got very strong in 2016. Um, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, it, it rolled over in 2017. Um, and so you had a big boom in kind of risk assets in general. It was, it was a very good liquidity environment. Um, and so, you know, Bitcoin soared, emerging markets soared, uh, U.S. equities soared. Everything went up and the Fed was raising rates slowly and, and little, but they were raising yeah. rates and they weren't doing quantitative easing. They were holding their balance sheet flat. Um, hmm. I think a better way to look at it is liquidity measures. And there's different ways to do it. I, I think one of the easiest ways to frame it is that if you look at global M2, so global broad money supply, and then you, you translate it back into dollars, hmm. right? So, so you say, okay, what is, the, what is the dollar worth of all the yuan, the dollar worth of all the British pounds, the dollar worth of all the yen? You take all these, all these major money supplies, you translate it back into dollars, and you look at if that's rising or falling, 
and at what pace. Um, and there's the two main variables that move that. One of them is money printing, right? So if, if, if money supplies are just growing quickly, that's generally going to go up. And number two is the strength of the dollar relative to other currencies. Because like it or not, the dollar is as a global reserve currency. It is kind of the unit of account for the world. It is, it is the, the unit that a lot of debt is denominated in, uh, including offshore. Uh, off, offshore the United States. Um, and so when you have basically either the dollar strengthening or money printers are slowing down, you'll generally get this environment where dollar denominated global money supply is decreasing. And if you look back at the narrative of Bitcoin being an inflation hedge, everyone's, you know, kind of trolling Bitcoin and saying, look, CPI spiked and Bitcoin rolled over. But actually, if you look at, you know, an earlier definition of inflation, basically inf expansion of the money supply, if you look at that global dollar-dominant M2, Bitcoin is highly correlated with that, right? So when that is rising, historically, Bitcoin's done pretty well. Mm -hmm. And when that's falling, Bitcoin has, has generally struggled. Now, you can still have weeks and months where that's not the case. And, and actually, this recent period was one because the dollar cooled off. And so that, that indicator did rise, but it coincided with FTX blowing up. And so that's an environment where if that didn't happen, probably would see, we would see a, a Bitcoin bounce. Right. Um, so if you have if you have industry specific issues, you can you can decouple for periods of time. Yeah. But in general, I think I think indicators like that are going to be what what drives the question of how well Bitcoin does over say a two year period. There are other factors, obviously, you know the the people dollar cost averaging into it, all the weak hands. Uh, washed out, so now it's mostly in strong hands. Um, but I think essentially you'll need another rising liquidity environment in order for Bitcoin to do well. And I think that can come in different forms. I mean, if essentially the Fed gets to the top of their cycle and they stop tightening, um, you could have an environment where, say, that you know the euro area is still tightening, maybe Japan's tightening a little bit, or at least the rate of change of of you know the dollar compared to the other currencies has slowed down. And so you can get a period that is more benign for liquidity, despite the fact that they're not cutting rates, that they could, they're just kind of holding level mm -hmm. and inflation still chopping around and the market expectations of what the Fed's going to do are weaker. And so I actually do think that you can get uh, a, a better liquidity environment in these two years. Um, I have concerns around the next, say, six months, um, but I, I kind of look towards 2024, for example, uh, maybe 2025 as a potential, just another round of, of rising you know, liquidity and, and probably coinciding with, with good news for Bitcoin. So you think that the next six months or so would be a good time to be accumulating if, if you're dollar cost averaging and you're, you're open for the longer term proposition of holding onto this for the next two to three years. Um, would you say this is a good time for people to be acquiring Bitcoin? I, I think so. I probably lengthen that time frame from two to three years to three to five years, um, at least. Yeah. And so I, th I, the way I've been phrasing it essentially that I think we're in a deep value zone. I think it's very attractive here with like a three to five year view, uh, but that I have no idea really what's going to happen in the next six months. I think there's yeah. there's still, you know, it, it really depends on what centralized policymakers do in terms of, you know, whether or not we have an acute liquidity crisis, uh, you know, what happens with China reopening and energy prices, and then what is, how does drone power respond to that if it happens? There's all these kind of if, if or situations that could pop up that are hard to predict in advance. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if you're bullish on the underlying reason for the asset to exist, which is kind of what we just covered in, in the prior uh, portion of this talk, if you think it's the best solution for solving that problem, if you don't see any other better solutions, um, 
And if you think that it's still under-owned compared to its potential, which I would, for me at least personally, I would check off yes to all those boxes, um, that I think it is undervalued here, um, but that it's likely not going to you know, see another round of proper valuation until we get that better liquidity environment. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's just so hard to predict these bottoms. You're never going to catch the wick. Your chances of doing that are the same as winning the lottery, which is why I do find it funny. I've noticed a new trend on Twitter about people talking shit about dollar cost averaging. And it's like, to me, that reeks of being new at investing. Like when you think you've you've uncovered something with massive long-term perpetual upside, obviously the play is to free up your cash flow and average into it over time. But it's easy in a bear market to throw throw darts at the wall and and say everybody's an idiot because they're all down. But that's how this works, especially in high volatility uh, assets, which uh, Bitcoin has been and uh, surely will likely to uh, likely continue to be. Yep, I agree. I think that most people should not spend their time trading. Uh, there's like you know if if you know people are good at something, and if if you happen to be the small percentage of people that are good at trading, sure. Um, but you know, you're, statistically speaking, you're probably not that. Um, and if you're not that. Uh, it's better to focus on doing productive work, saving money, and dollar cost averaging into something. And the way that I would focus on managing risk is to tell people that, okay, you like Bitcoin, you don't have to put your net worth in Bitcoin. You can decide, I want to put X percentage into Bitcoin. Or let's say out of the, my, you know, let's say I earn, I, I save X, you know, dollars per month. What percentage of that do I want a dollar cost average into Bitcoin? Yeah. Right, it doesn't have to be all of that. It mm-hmm. could be you might you might put the rest into stocks. You might you might put the you know it might be building home equity. You might whatever you're doing, um, you know you can put a percentage of it into Bitcoin, and that you know position sizing is what can buffer you from volatility and things like that. That always gives you optionality. I mean, if Bitcoin absolutely crashes and you want to then make an active decision, to just, I'm going to go buy you know another thousand dollars worth this month, right? You can then do that. Um, so I, you know, that's kind of how I view it. That you can still make some active decisions if you want to, but for the most part, I think it should be an autopilot. And if you want to spend your time researching, spend your time researching the fundamentals of the asset rather than, you know, recent price history, forward price expectations, yeah. things like that. And keep keep focusing on ans- yeah, keep focusing on answering the question: Is is this the best asset to solve this problem? And how big is this problem to solve? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. When, when people ask me, I get the question like, why, why don't you trade? Well, my first answer is I'm not smart enough. But my second answer is for me to even begin to feel comfortable, I'd probably need to be doing it full time, 40 hours a week. I don't have nearly that amount of time to dedicate to it. I'm not smart enough. If you're a firefighter, you're probably not either. So hang it up, uh, find assets with strong fundamentals it's, and free up your cash flow. It's not even just not about being smart enough. Like you have a Bloomberg terminal. Do you have all the information, all the data? Like you just... You know, it's just too much, man. I also think it's more productive to be a firefighter. I think that, you know, trader trading, you know, I, I obviously have a lot of friends that are traders, but essentially you're 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 shuffling around pieces of other people's work, right? So if you're trading equities, if you're trading bonds, if you're trading commodities, if you know, whatever you're trading, basically other people are building stuff and you're just trading around between each other and you're you're scooping off you know, if you're successful, you're scooping off a little bit of that for yourself. Yeah. Um and of course, you know, on a small degree, it's important. I mean, markets need liquidity. There needs to be market makers. Yep. This is, you know, around the margins, it's an, it's an honorable profession. But when there's too much of it, it's just, it's parasitic. Um, whereas I think for, for the vast majority of people, unless you're a market maker, unless you're, you know, really a professional trader that's actually, you know, an important part of the system, it's better for you to go out, do something, build something, help someone, do something that is rewarding to yourself and others 
and then save and, and leave trading to people that are you know professional traders that that's yep. you know they they are providing that important liquidity that the market needs hey lynn one thing that i think dan and i both really want to hear so we've established that you think bitcoin's a good price right now and so <laughs> we want to move on to the digital asset group here a bit and talk about gbtc so we don't anyone, we don't own anyone, any obviously lynn yeah, we're just clearly, curious for the audience <laughs> we, we just want to know for the audience we don't have any we're not worried about it at all what are your thoughts on it because I even looked at it recently in the last couple of days, but I think the discount was like 50% to NAV. So for anyone listening, that means it's 50%. It's basically worth 50% of what the actual underlying Bitcoin is worth. So on paper, it seems like a great deal. There's also the 2% fee to consider. You have to pay 2% of the uh, fund's value per year uh, to that group for running this trust. And it's gone, you know, this thing has swung wildly from huge premium to now huge um, negative under NAV. Uh, what are your thoughts on it in general? Do you think it's a good purchase at this point if you have no alternatives for, say, a retirement account that you want to have some little bit of exposure to Bitcoin in? So I think whenever possible, people should buy actual Bitcoin. Agreed. Um, I think that's that's the way to do it. it it's much better risk-reward overall, uh, especially when you self-custody it or collaborative custody it. Um, for Grayscale, so if you look at most closed-end trusts, right? So they're different than ETFs. An ETF... The reason it's, it, it almost always trades at NAV, unless there's a massive liquidity crisis, like in March 2020, where it can, it can dislocate for a couple of days, ETFs generally trade right at NAV because they can be redeemed or created on the spot. And so anytime it deviates from NAV, someone can come in and arbitrage that. And that's, again, the purpose of like right. a professional trader. They can come in and they can analyze that and they can, they can arbitrage that. Uh, a closed-end fund... Um, which, which you know, is a, a vehicle that goes back a long time and Grayscale is similar to. Um, you you basically have a collection of stocks in a bucket, and you know the market can't re create and redeem shares of that bucket. Um, only the, the the people running that fund can. And traditionally, closed-end funds trade at a discount to NAV more often than not, unless there's some sort of spectacular thing that everybody needs to own. Um, that's kind of killing it, you know, like if, if, if say Warren Buffett were running one of these or something like that, you know, maybe it would trade at a premium, but usually they trade at a discount and often it's offsetting the fees. So if they have like a 1% annual fee, they might trade at a 10% discount to NAV and essentially you're factoring out 10 years worth of fees. Right. Um, and so about 10% is usually the right number for a closed end fund. And obviously, you know, if that asset type is out of favor, it might dip down to 20%. Uh, if that asset's really in favor, it might be only negative 5%. It might go into a premium. Uh, and that's kind of the traditional closed-end fund world. Um, and for Bitcoin, uh, for GBTC, because it has a 2% discount, um, and because you're taking on the counterparty risk, I mean, probably, really, you know, if, you, if you're comparing it to other closed-end funds, probably around 20% discount to NAV makes sense. Um, if it starts going way, way, way below that, which it has now, it implies something's wrong. Either it's deeply undervalued, or the market is concerned about their solvency, or they don't think it can be arbitraged anytime soon. Right. Because for example, a normal closed-end fund, the reason it really shouldn't go much below 20% is because eventually the asset manager says, you know what, we're gonna like, you know, buy back some of our own shares. We're gonna like arbitrage this ourselves to some degree mm -hmm. and get this back up a little bit. Um, whereas Grayscale, the way it's currently written, it's really hard to do that. Um, and it's not really in, uh, you know, um, uh, Grayscale's interest to do it either. Uh, and so people are like, am I just going to be locked into this thing for a long time? We don't even know when an ETF is going to be you know, confirmed. And so I think that adds additional uncertainty to it. 
Right. Uh, and so there's really there's no answer for how long this could go on or how deep it could go, especially if you have some tail risks of like, you know, and th- these days not even really big tail risks. They're just like actual risks of bankruptcy and then going through that whole process to, to eventually get that, you know, liquidated or, or sold to some other asset manager where you could then be locked into it with like a illiquidity discount. Right. So, you know, things that things that are liquid should trade at a premium to things that are illiquid if they're the same asset, essentially. Right. Um, and so the short answer is that I would not go out and, and buy it for the arbitrage. Um, I don't think that's the I don't think most people should be doing that. I think, you know, obviously, if you're a professional investor, if you have kind of connections, maybe you can explore that as something to do. But I think most people should not buy that. Um, I, I do hold a little bit in brokerage accounts. And it's it's when you're confined to an area where you want to have Bitcoin exposure there, but you can't own Bitcoin in that environment. You know what are some of the proxies? And unfortunately, we don't have very good proxies. GBTC has historically been one of the better proxies, but you obviously have the huge premium or discount thing. You can buy MicroStrategy, uh, but then you're buying it with some degree of leverage, right? So you're right. you're you're buying an operating company. The the advantage is that you're not paying a fee. You actually have a, a positive carry arguably because uh, you're buying a profitable company that has a lot of bitcoin but then you're taking on that leverage risk uh, so it's a little bit different risk reward profile and then you have futures based etfs which are kind of a sloppy way to do it unless you're just doing it for a trade um, and so there's really not that many good ways to get it in an account so i would say that whenever possible try to buy real bitcoin and if you're going to buy one of these proxies i would just say do it with a smaller allocation um, yeah factor in the possibility of tail risk or long delays or restructurings or you know it's taking years to to correct itself um yeah yeah i I do think there's risks there don't uh wreck your entire roth ira on gbtc for those in our uh earning band that are listening um all right we'll maybe keep you a minute or two past the bell i want to end this way in true blue collar bitcoin fashion talk bullish for an hour and then scare the pants off of some people in the audience. Uh, you, you did it. We did more of this last episode. We could probably do a whole episode with you in the future and maybe we'll do it. I think you said you're actually working on an article on uh, viable risks, but pick one right now, viable risk for the Bitcoin protocol or network that you think uh, is, is most prominent and, and has the highest likelihood of potential to play out. I'll pick two. Um, so one is I think that there's there's kind of a war on privacy and self-custody uh, happening, uh, at least an attempted war. Uh, and so I think it's unlikely that, say, in, in you know some of these Western countries that, they can, that they're going to say you can't own Bitcoin. But there's a higher likelihood that they say you can't own Bitcoin uh, yourself mm. or you know, it's too private. You can't own, you know, things like that. There's been, there's been bills proposed. Now, luckily, um, Senator um, Warren does not have a very high ratio of getting bills through, right? So, so the bill she proposed, which is actually, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, it probably would have all sorts of first amendment challenges to it. Um, But the, the bill that they proposed that kind of, you know, it goes against like uh, wallet developers. It goes against like uh, anyone who would write code that like is good for like anonymization. Um, you know, that's unlikely to be passed. Uh, but there is kind of both in Europe and the United States and elsewhere uh, clearly interested policymakers against going after self-custodial money, anonymous money, private money, just privacy in general, things like that. There's more and more clamped down on. They want to surveil everything and they want to put a free stuff. Um, and so I do think that's going to be an ongoing challenge this decade. 
is that a number of jurisdictions are not going to want you to easily self-custody and move around, especially if there's more and more better privacy techniques, right? I think that that those are still improving over time. And so as they become more and more viable, that that threatens some of these policymakers more. So I I think that's a, a risk to be aware of that, you know, there's a difference between saying you can't own Bitcoin versus just putting all sorts of onerous things on you. Um, I was talking to um, Joseph Wang the other day. Uh, he used to work at the Fed. Uh, uh, people should follow him on Twitter. It's like Fed Guy. Fed Guy Twelve, uh, I think. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. we'll so link he, it. He, if we got that he's wrong. He's great. So he he pointed out he's like these uh what is it like eighty six thousand like IRS auditors that they're adding on. Yeah. He thinks that that they're gonna purposely audit audit Bitcoiners more. That you're gonna be like random selected for audit more. If you if you if you Gorgeous. check the box saying you saying you hold cryptocurrency right, so it basically adds a cost, adds a friction, makes your life harder. If he's right, right, and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that that basically if people check that box, you know, this especially because it's just like do you, the, I think the question is like, do you own cryptocurrency? And so they're going to be like, oh, this this person probably traded DeFi and didn't report all these capital gains and like or losses, you know, they they probably didn't report their trades. And they can just go in there and just kind of wreck them. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you have to be prepared for audits. You have to be prepared for frictions. There's going to be bills that try to challenge things. Uh, so I think that's, that's just a risk and a friction to be aware of. Um, I think number two is that things could take longer to play out because than, than people suspect. Because anytime there's a rise in the liquidity environment, there's going to be charlatans coming out or even some well-meaning people coming out and saying, hey, I made this new coin and it's a hype cycle. and capital flows into that because the whole point of this asset is that it's it's open source so anyone can create their own shitcoin version of it and I, I think that we have to pretty much exhaust every bad idea before people realize that you know what the good idea is and if, and if we're correct about the thesis that bitcoin is the best way to solve uh, these problems that it should do well in the end but i think that it's it's going to take quite a while and there's there's kind of centralized ways that you know that they can that cer- certain assets can be deflationary. Certain assets can be you know that they can they can kind of replicate hard money for a period of time. Kind of like how if the Fed tightens for a period of time, they can make the dollar replicate a hard asset totally. for a period of time. And that challenge is something that is truly decentralized and truly scarce because for periods of time it seems like well what's the difference? I mean if you know if this other assets you know it has even lower inflation rate than Bitcoin, why should I buy that? And of course, that works until it doesn't. And it works until it blows up. It works until some of the actual centralization pressures manifest in more obvious ways. Um, and so I think that basically that people have to be prepared for the monetization of Bitcoin. You know, it's not going to conform to their um, uh, like their timetable necessarily, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think you you do have to focus on the long haul when when if you're choosing to allocate to this asset. Yeah. Unless you're a trader, which I don't recommend being. Man, what an awesome hour and a half. Appreciate uh, your generosity, Lynn. Um, oh, Lynn, our- one be- just before we go, I got to ask one more question. The uh, mining stocks. <laughs> you have any that these are the things have gotten so waylaid. Oh, just man. wondering if you have, you know, one or two that you're a big proponent of for our audience or ourselves, or if you think that this is something you should best avoid. So I, I think most people should probably avoid them. I, I do think that if you're really into investing, um, after you see kind of the hash rate sort of bottom out and, you know, if you, if you do get another liquidity cycle, if you do get kind of a, you know, more of a confirmed bottom in Bitcoin, more of like a, an upward trend, probably some of the ones that get through this are going to be undervalued. 
um, and, and they're probably going to give like pretty big returns, at least for a period of time. If you look, if you look back in the, the traditional mining sector, a lot of miners underperform the asset that they mine, right? Because you, in addition to the volatility of the asset, you have all these all these ways to lose capital along the way. Right. There's there's more ways to screw up than to be successful. So if you look at the best miners historically, let's let's say gold miners for example, mm-hmm. the ones with like the smartest CEO, like the Warren Buffett of the gold industry, right? There's a handful of these guys that like you're just they're 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 like born to do this. They're really good at it. And if you invest in their thing, you'll outperform gold. But the vast, the, the long tail of gold miners underperform gold over decades. It's just, it's like a terrible place to invest. Yeah. Um, and I think probably Bitcoin miners will end up being the same way, where you know, if if you look at the the top few companies, they'll probably do really really well, especially when you buy them in the depths of a bear market. But the problem is if you don't do, you know, 100 hours of work to, to figure out which ones might might be that. And then you only allocate a little bit because, of course, you're taking on all this risk. I just think the overall risk reward is not very attractive. Whereas if you're someone like, say, Greg Foss and you're like a professional, you know, credit analyst and you say, I want to go buy some distressed debt of this company for this specific reason, and you're professional. I think there are going to be opportunities in that space. I just think that you have to be, you know, compared to the risk reward of just stacking Bitcoin every week. Yep um is is just not attractive so i i kind of view it as more either something to play around in avoid or if you're or leave it to professionals to dig through and actually that want to spend time on figuring out what is what is unusually cheap mm. oh great answer yeah, thanks, uh, we're looking forward to meeting you in person hopefully this year we'll i don't know where you'll we'll be in miami and i think we'll we're going to prioritize specific bitcoin in september thanks, um glad to hear it. hand off to yourself as we close this out uh, I'm at lindalton.com. People can check that out. Sign up to the free newsletter. Uh, it comes out every six weeks on average. Uh, and I, I cover mostly macro stuff, but it, it varies. So check it out. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Lynn. Yep, thank you. And read Lynn's stuff. It's amazing. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're appreciating our content here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by taking a minute to leave us a review on Apple, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or liking and subscribing on your app of choice. Josh and myself, Dan, are also active on Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC, where we regularly post about Bitcoin, economics, food, and all sorts of other bullshit. If you want to send us questions or comments, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, we take our partnerships on this show extremely seriously. We believe in these companies and their utility. Information, promo codes, and links to all our sponsors can be found down in the show notes. Take care, folks. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.